Well, last week we finished our sermon series in the book of Daniel. For those of us who were with, uh, those of you who were with us then, and believe it or not, it was just over a year ago in May of 2021 that we temporarily finished our series in First Corinthians. So this morning we finally return to that series with the hopes. Uh, that we will be able to finish the book of Corinthians before Jesus comes again. Uh, But, you know, hey, if he does come back before we finish it, I am certainly not complaining. So in these next uh, few minutes, for those who weren't uh, with us in that time when we did went through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, let me give you a brief summary to catch uh, us up to speed on where we are at. Now, this, the book of 1 Corinthians, you may open it in your Bibles if you like. Uh, it'll be, I don't know what page, uh, some page. Uh, but it is uh, after the book of Romans in the New Testament, before the book of 2 Corinthians. And it is a, uh, called this because Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, the Corinthian church was situated in the city of Corinth, And Corinth was a rather large city in the Roman Empire, uh, which was uh, known also for the Isthmian Games. That's a bit of a difficult one to get your mouth around. The Isthmian Games, which were similar to the Olympics. Uh, And the city of Corinth also had a, a lifestyle which was very metropolitan. So very much probably not like Darwin, Uh, But places like Sydney, Melbourne, uh, New York, London, those kinds of places uh, was was the kind of uh, atmosphere, the kind of uh, culture that existed in the city of Corinth in the first century around this time when uh, Paul was there. Uh, It was also known for its immorality, uh, much like perhaps Las Vegas would have that uh, reputation today. And so... Uh, there was actually a phrase, to, to be Corinthian meant exactly that, uh, that, that kind of reputation. And so as we worked our way through the letter uh, about a year, a year ago, we discovered that some of that immorality had actually uh, wormed its way into the church. Uh, and some is you know, probably quite an understatement, actually. Uh, you might recall in chapter 5, uh, there was an example of uh, a man who was sleeping with his stepmother and, uh, and, the, and the church was proud about that. And so Paul actually had to rebuke them and instruct them on what they ought to do rather than to be proud of it and to let it continue. And so there was examples like that as well as other examples of uh, sexual immorality. Uh, Paul had to speak about and give tough love to uh, their arrogance and their boasting, uh, their spiritual immaturity, their quarreling and their fighting and taking each other to court, as well as also their flirtation with idolatry and their selfishness and their lack of care and love for one another. That is what Paul was seeking to address in this letter. And not only does he call out their sin and point it out to them, but he actually corrects their wrong thinking and their sinful practice. And he calls them in love and in grace to return to the Lord, to turn to the Lord in the things that they are doing. And we still have five chapters left in the book. And so what treasures, what things is Paul going to address in the rest of this letter? Well, much of what Paul has written about in the first 11 chapters of the book concerns what the church does and what they should do when the church gathers together as the church. Well, that 
continues in the rest of the book. From chapter 12 onwards, it's true also of the rest of this book that we are going to explore over the coming weeks and months. And so where we left off in May was at the end of chapter 11, uh, where Paul had just finished talking about women praying and prophesying in the gathering. Uh, you know, just, just a really great topic. If you want to go and find out more about that, feel free to listen to uh, the sermon that uh, we did uh, about a year or so ago. And then after that, he then gave instructions to the church about the right observance of the Lord's Supper. And so it was at the very end of that chapter, right after Paul finished talking about that, uh, that we uh, finished. And so that is the end of chapter 11. Here now today, we begin at the beginning of chapter 12. And so Paul still has that concern about what a good church gathering actually looks like and what the, the life of the, of, and, of the, and the spirit of the church meant is, uh, ought to look like. And so Paul here is going to respond to something that the Corinthians uh, very likely asked him about. That is the matter of spiritual gifts. And so as uh, we uh, yeah, prepare to hear the word on that, Danny is going to read our passage this morning, in, uh, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. Uh, feel free to turn to that and have that open. Thank you, Danny. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However you were led, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another by faith the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, and to another prophecy. And to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptised, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Thank you, Danny. Well, do you think you are gifted? I just want to leave it long enough to make you wonder whether it's a rhetorical question or whether I'm expecting an answer from you. Michael Kearney born on January 18th, 1984, the same year as me. Uh, he graduated uh, high school at the age of six, and then he gained a high school diploma at the age of eight, graduated from university with a bachelor's degree in anthropology at age 10, entering into the Guinness Book of Records as the youngest person ever to graduate from college a world record which I believe still stands today. Now certainly, if you define the term in that way, what it means to be gifted, well, I think very few of us would be able to say that we are gifted. 
I was born in the same year as this guy, and I certainly cannot boast that kind of resume of accomplishments. Kids, do any of you want to graduate from university at age 10? Eh, maybe not. You see, being gifted in that sense is often what comes to our minds when we think of the term. But that is uh, very different to what it means to be gifted in the sense that Paul was talking about and describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They are two very different things. And if we're not careful, then we might be prone to uh, thinking that because we're not gifted in that kind of way, we're not gifted in the way that, that we might normally usually consider that term, thank you, oops, sorry, then we might think, you know, I'm not gifted in a noticeable way, and so therefore I'm not gifted at all. You know, I make that distinction and I make it clear because we are easily at risk of confusing the two, of applying that definition to what Paul is saying here in, Roman, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Not only that, we then are at risk of, start, of starting to treat the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Scripture the same way that we might think about other gifts that are valued and are treasured by the people around, and the society around us. And in our world, being gifted also usually means a pathway to personal gain. Michael Kearney went on to win millions on game shows. Others who are gifted earn millions by starting businesses or trading stocks or, uh, you know, writing and getting song royalties or producing great exquisite pieces of art that they sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. It can be a, a, a we associate it with a very personal gain and endeavor. But that's not what spiritual gifts are for. And so our two points for this morning are truths that I want you to grab hold of about spiritual gifts as we work our way through this text. Firstly, God has given you spiritual gifts to, for the common good. And they can go together, you can make them one sentence to summarize this passage. So let's have our Bibles open, our notepads open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and have our hearts open to hear God's word this morning. Beginning at points number one, God has given you spiritual gifts. God has given you spiritual gifts. You might be the kind of person, you know, who thinks you have loads of spiritual gifts or just gifts generally. Or perhaps you might be the kind of person who thinks that you don't have any at all. Well, in this passage, God gives us, through Paul, teaching on how to rightly think about spiritual gifts and what we should do with them. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. As we've seen throughout this letter, Paul has been responding to things that the Corinthians have been asking him about. Uh, earlier in, in one of the chapters, he says, and now for the matters that I wrote to you about. And so he doesn't explicitly say that he is responding to something they wrote about here with regard to spiritual gifts. But given the language when he says, uh, you know, now concerning, it's likely that that is what he's doing. He's about to inform the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. 
And he wants that because, as it seems from what he says here, they are actually uninformed. So think about it, though. If, if this were you writing a letter and, and you got to this point where you thought, okay, now I am going to inform you, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to tell you about the spiritual gifts, what would be the first thing that you would say? Well, you'd, it'd probably be something about spiritual gifts, Right? Uh, if it were me, I know what I'd be thinking of. In our day, in Christian circles, when the topic of spiritual gifts comes up in conversation, it is all about, almost exclusively, prophecy and the gift of tongues. That's probably where I would go to begin. But that's not where Paul begins. First, he wants to lay a foundation about spiritual gifts. And the first brick in that is the fact that these Things concern those who have been born again. Look at the way Paul places the Corinthians' lives as pagans as something that was firmly in the past, something that belongs to a completely different category. They were pagans and they were led astray to mute idols. You know, interestingly, uh, the word for pagans in the Greek is literally Gentiles, non-Jews. It is here and another place, uh, I think in 1 Corinthians, where it is translated as pagans to indicate that Paul is referring to a, a spiritual difference. But it's interesting that he uses the term here because most of them, ethnically, they already were Gentiles. And yet here he is saying, you were Gentiles. That's why it's translated as pagans, because he's, he's highlighting the point that you were those who did not believe in Christ. You were those who did not trust in Jesus, but now you are. It is a categorical difference. Their identity as followers of Christ is now the thing that defines them. The person who becomes a Christian, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, is a new creation. And this is why Nicodemus was so confused when Jesus told him in John 3 that he had to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked, well, how can someone who is old enter their mother's womb again? That doesn't make any sense. See, the Bible highlights that this, when a person comes to Christ, when they turn to him in repentance and faith, it is a night and day difference. It is a guilty and innocent difference. It is a dead and alive difference difference. To be in Christ is a completely different category. Which is why he says what he does in verse 3. You see, the person with the Spirit could not possibly say that Jesus is accursed. And it is only when someone is in the Holy Spirit that they may say, Jesus is Lord. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't saying that anyone who can form those words with their mouths is in the whole, has the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I mean, I just said Jesus is a curse. I, you know, I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean that I don't have the Holy Spirit. When I lived in Melbourne, uh, on my train ride home out to Hopper's Crossing, West is best, uh, at, at least three times in different locations on that train ride, there would be a wall somewhere that would have... Jesus is Lord, graffitied on it. At first, you know, I, I thought this was great. I was like, hey, somebody's getting the message out. 
until my mom or somebody pointed out that, you know, well, actually, it's not a great witness uh, for somebody to be vandalizing a place with those words. Was the person who spray-painted that on the wall in the Holy Spirit? Maybe. Maybe it was somebody who was a young believer and who was just zealous and wanted to get the message out. The point is, it's not just about being able to say or not say those words. Paul is simply not talking about the act of vocalizing. No, those, those words give voice to a reality. A reality which is highlighted by that contrast with the Corinthians' former pagan lives. You see, in Paul's day, Christians were as rare as hen's teeth to turn your back on pagan religion, to turn your back on those idols, and to follow what was considered back then a Jewish sect was a significant and a strange move. And so such a profession to come from the lips of somebody to say that Jesus is Lord was far more likely to be a genuine one, unlike today, where in some places you might actually gain social credit rather than lose it for becoming a Christian. It's perhaps easier to discern the genuineness of that profession. But these verses, they lay an important foundation for us for spiritual gifts. That is, they are given to those who are genuine followers of Christ. Spiritual gifts are given to those who have the Holy Spirit living within them. You cannot have a spiritual gift if you do not have the Holy Spirit living in you. Unless you have been brought from that former category of being dead to sin, of following idols, into the born-again category of following and loving Jesus, then you do not have spiritual gifts. You may have heard of the Alpha Course, uh, which is an evangelistic course developed by a guy named Nicky Gumbel in the UK. Now, I'm very thankful for the way that God has used that course to bring many people to, to genuine faith in Christ. But one of my biggest concerns about it, especially in some places where it is run, is that being born again uh, in Alpha is often seen as a very quick profession of Jesus as Lord, if you will, and then a, a quick moving on to a desire to see so-called manifestations of the Spirit. There's a desire to see some kind of big emotional response, some kind of, of, of way that we can tangibly point to an act or a, a, a work of the Spirit in a person's life. Now, there's a lot to unpack from that, which I won't go into right now, and you're welcome to ask me about it later. But I bring it up simply to make the point that spiritual gifts are given to those who are truly born again. That is Paul's point. You can't get spiritual gifts before you are born again. You can only have a gift given by God through the Spirit when you have the Holy Spirit. And so if a person claims to have a spiritual gift, whatever it might be, perhaps it is prophecy or speaking in tongues, if the rest of their life does not display the kind of Spirit-filled change and trusting in Jesus that comes with being born again, then it is worth asking whether that truly is a manifestation of the Spirit. Paul makes it extremely clear here 
that spiritual gifts are given to those who are not in that former category of being led by gods and idols that are false. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not sure what category you are in. If you're visiting today and you're curious about Christianity, I'm so glad that you are here and I hope that you continue to come back to hear more about Jesus. He is really worth your time. As Paul has just said, those who do not live with Jesus as Lord are those who live with other idols as Lord. And today, most of us in Australia, we probably don't have physical idols that are made of wood and stone or gold and silver or bronze or whatever it might be that we might bow down to and worship in other temples or in our houses. But what we do have are loads of other things that the Lord, uh, as Lord over our lives. As Romans 1 says, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We do this because our hearts are sinful and they oppose God, which places us under His wrath. And this is why God sent His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life of obedience and of following God, following Him truly, not idolizing anything, and then going to a Roman cross to receive the penalty of God's wrath for our sin. He died in our place so that by turning away from our sin, from our former lives, from our worship of other things, we might worship Him and receive forgiveness through faith in Christ. It is that person who says, by the Spirit, in a way that goes beyond just the mere words, Jesus is Lord. If you haven't done that yet today, let me encourage you to do so. And please feel free to come and talk to me or whoever brought you here this morning more about it. You see, it is these ones who have been taken out of that former category of worshipping idols to saying that Jesus is Lord, that God gives spiritual gifts. Because spiritual gifts are given by our triune God to His people. Let's read from verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Here we see unity in diversity. Or university. The word itself illustrates the point. You get that? Two different words coming together and becoming one word. Now, to be clear, kids, just so I don't ruin your education, that's not what university means. But today, that's, I'm making it mean that. University, unity in diversity. You see, I love the way that Paul gives us two sides of the same coin in these verses of verse four to, verses 4 to 6. Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God. You can see what he's doing here. He's showing us uh, the, 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 
fact that there is a diversity of gifts, but a unity of a God who gives them. And he shows us his Trinitarian assumptions as he does this. The doctrine of the Trinity wasn't fully fleshed out by later theologians at this point. But here we see a classic example of how the apostles conceived of our one God being three persons. Paul is emphasizing the fact that the diversity of spiritual gifts are distributed by God to His people. And even though there are many and different kinds of gifts, the source of all of them is the same. And that source Himself is a one God in three beings. Three persons. Thanks. And this is important because as we'll see in the next couple of chapters, it means that there is no room for boasting in one gift over another. Look at the different words in verses 4 to 6. Gifts, service, activities. They all point to the same thing. It's not like the Spirit gives gifts of, you know, and Jesus enables service and then God the Father empowers activities. He's using them synonymously to, to indicate the same idea. Paul is stressing the diversity of the various gifts that come from the same triune God and he is emphasizing the unity of the God who gives them. And that is exactly what he goes on to summarize in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This verse is, is the heart of the passage. It basically summarizes what Paul is trying to say from verses 1 to 13. Do you think you are gifted? If you are in Christ... If you say Jesus is Lord and you have turned to Him in repentance and faith, then God has given you a manifestation of the Spirit. That's another way of saying a spiritual gift. God's Spirit manifests Himself in His church and in you through the gifts that He apportions to each one. If you're prone to thinking that you are a waste of molecules and thinking that you bring nothing to the table, I cannot give you a stronger rebuke and a stronger word of encouragement than what God Himself says about you. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. That includes you. I didn't look this up, but I'm pretty sure the Greek word for each means every single one. God is the Oprah of spiritual gifts. You get a gift, you get a gift, you get a gift. Everybody gets a gift. And the best part is they're right here. That's a bit of an old reference, but I'm pretty sure the meme lives on. And that's unsurprising because God is a lavish and He is a generous God who gives good gifts to His children. Kids, can you imagine if your parents decided to buy a bunch of presents and then distribute them all to everybody except one? Would they be good parents or bad parents? Yeah, that's right. There's a thumbs down right there. Thank you, Connor. That's right. They would be bad parents. I'm certainly an imperfect father, but I know enough to know that it would be a terrible thing for me to to buy a stack of gifts or chocolate or something and then give them all to all and then go, ah, not you. 
brothers and sisters, you have a good father. And he gives good gifts. And he gives good gifts to each of his children. Not only does he give you the gift of salvation, but he gives you the gift of spiritual gifts. You are gifted. But how? And with what? What is a spiritual gift? Well, let's see what Paul goes on to say about that. We'll come back to the second half of verse 7 in point 2. Let's read from verse 8, the bit you've all been waiting for. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. It's important to know uh, that Paul is not trying to give a, a detailed, fully worked out theology of spiritual gifts here. As we heard before, he's addressing some of the uninformed practices and abuses of the gifts by the Corinthians. And so this list that we've just read is a representative list, which is to say that he's not naming every possible spiritual gift that God gives to his people. And that means, I think, that there are spiritual gifts that God gives to his people that aren't mentioned in the Bible. One of the reasons we know this is because he has other lists of spiritual gifts, like another one at the end of this chapter, another one at Ephesians 4, and one in Romans 12, which Danny read for us earlier. And those lists, uh, they, they list different gifts to what we have just read in 1 Corinthians 12. So, for example, Romans 12 includes service and uh, leading and acts of mercy as gifts. So how do you discern what is a spiritual gift then? We'll get to that later. Of course, the things that Paul lists here, they are still legitimate gifts. And the repetition of some of them, even in the other passages that I just mentioned, indicates their significance to the church. But allow me to briefly explain what I think each of the ones that Paul mentions here in this passage are. Now, just to uh, limit your expectations... Uh, I'll tell you now that I'm not going to give you a detailed explanation of each of them, but in a few weeks' time, we'll actually do a couple of uh, topical sermons to explore these things in greater detail, in particular, especially the gifts of prophecy and tongues. So I'm going to hold my cards a little bit closer to my chest today, and uh, you'll just have to come back another time if you would like to delve into that more deeply with me. So, let's begin with the utterances of, of wisdom and knowledge in verse 8. Now, these, I think, are likely referring to the teaching of the apostles and probably also, by extension, the teaching of pastors and teachers in the church. The main reasons for this are because of how Paul uses the terms wisdom and knowledge in the letter of 1 Corinthians. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul contrasts the wisdom of the gospel with the so-called wisdom of the world. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God is that which God gave to the apostles to preach. 
And so there is a very clear distinction between what is worldly wisdom and what is the wisdom of the gospel. And as we saw many months ago in chapter 8, Paul uses the term knowledge somewhat ironically, likely uh, having a jab at those who thought that they had true knowledge or secret knowledge, but had missed what it truly means to have godly knowledge. And so those two terms, in that sense, there are similarities between the two words and how Paul actually uses them in the letter. Not only that, the word utterance uh, in the original Greek is the word logos, which is often translated as word. And all across Paul's letters, we often uh, find the coupling of the word logos with other words, which he then uses to refer to the message of God's plan of salvation. So to give you some examples, uh, Romans 9, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Colossians 1, 5, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. So I think there's an allusion here to that very word and to the way that Paul uses it. Also at the end of chapter 12, you'll see that Paul includes teaching as a gift in the lists that he uh, includes there, which we'll look at next week. And so therefore, uh, the gift refers to those who have been charged to continue to preach that message of the gospel publicly. At first the apostles and then those who teach. Now some would say uh, that these utterances of knowledge and wisdom refer to some kind of message that God uh, gives to a person in the moment similar to what some might call a prophetic word. Now, given what I've described in the context of the term, uh, as well as the fact that uh, I can't see something close to that definition in Scripture for these terms, then uh, I think that's unlikely. Well, as for the gift of faith in verse 9, given that faith is necessary for anyone who comes to Christ... I think it's reasonable to think that Paul is referring to something special here, not just the kind of faith that, that brings you to saving faith, but a, a, something more extraordinary. Later on in chapter 13, Paul refers to faith that can move mountains. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because Jesus uses that very term in his teaching, that very idea. And so I think it's likely that Paul, when he talks about the gift of faith, the spiritual gift of faith, is referring to extraordinary faith, the kind that has such a deep trust in the Lord, perhaps for something specific that is encouraging to others and spurs them on to deep faith. A gift of healing. Uh, kids, can you tell me what it means to heal? Anyone? Anyone? Leprosy, yeah, you can heal leprosy. What would happen if a person with leprosy is healed? Do you know? Yeah, that's right. They'll have good skin again, right? Their, their leprous skin would be healed, would be made right, restored to what it should be. Thank you, Connor. The, the, the gift of healing, or the gifts of healing, as Paul refers to here, uh, I think refer to miraculous gifts. So as we read about in the book of Acts, God did some incredible miracles of physical healing through His apostles. And when Jesus sends out His 72 disciples in Luke chapter 10, He grants them authority to heal the sick. It would not be unreasonable to assume that other disciples after Jesus 
uh, ascended to heaven might have the same gift. And so the plural of gifts of healing might also suggest different types of healing. Maybe medical, I don't know. But yeah, we can talk about that one another time. I don't think so, personally. Anyway, let's keep going. Uh, as for miracles, uh, they may refer to other kinds of miracles not specifically related to healing. Uh, so something like casting out demons. If you read Acts 19, 11 to 12, Paul, uh, there's an example of Paul doing exactly that, performing miracles and healing the sick and doing exactly that. Uh, that's what I think about that one. Well, that covers the first half of the list. All neatly wrapped up in a bow for you, like a gift. And now, in the second half of the list, we have these spicy ones. Prophecy. Uh, so prophecy is understood by some to mean a message for someone from God, which may or may not be accurate. Others believe that when the New Testament speaks of prophecy, it should be understood to mean the same thing as what the Old Testament means when it talks about prophecy. That is, it's a message from God that has the same accuracy and the same authority as Scripture, the very Word of God, the very, thus says the Lord. As I mentioned, I'll deal with those in greater depth in a few weeks. You have to hold on till then for that. As for distinguishing between spirits, I think this refers to discernment from God's, between God's truth and false teaching. You may remember in Acts 17, uh, the Bereans that Paul is preaching to, uh, they are commended because they tested what Paul had to say against Scripture. They wanted to make sure that Paul wasn't just making this up as though it was somehow disconnected from the faith that he was building on. The Apostle John also gives us essentially the same instruction as Paul in chapter 4 of his first letter. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And so I think distinguishing between spirits, that is the, the most basic meaning of it. And I imagine that almost all readers of Scripture would agree with that definition. We are to discern what is true and what is false. The question is, what does that mean? What does it look like? As you might imagine, how you define prophecy will play a significant role in this. Well, and finally, perhaps the spiciest of all, the shriracha of the spiritual gifts, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. There is definitely some hot sauce that comes with this one. Uh, Rather appropriate because it's a tongue. Some understand the gifts of tongues to be that of a heavenly, unintelligible language that is spoken between a person's spirit and God. The language itself, it doesn't have a particular code or structure uh, as though you could learn it like other languages of, of the world that we use, like Indonesian or Ngosa. Uh, I practiced that for a long time, by the way. Um, the, the, the spiritual gift of tongues, it, the, this understanding might, what might be what we call an ecstatic language, something which, which doesn't have a particular code or structure. It is something that, that, that happens between the person and God. 
And so hence, the gift of interpretation is a spiritual interpretation. It's not like translating the language and understanding it. Others would say that the gift of tongues is that of speaking an entirely different earthly language, one that actually exists on earth. And so they would point to Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell and people began to speak in other languages, ones that they did not know before. Now, as I said, I know that I haven't revealed my hand on most of these, uh, but that's because we'll get to them and also because spending a lot of time of them on them now uh, would take away from the main point of the passage. It would take away from what Paul is trying to say. It would be like drinking the whole bottle of sriracha rather than just putting it on the food. And that main meal, that is evident in these verses. Did you notice Paul's great emphasis on this same spirit in this section of verses 8 to 10? Through the spirit, the same spirit, the same spirit, the one spirit. He is the one who gives all of these gifts. How tragic it is that this has become such a, a, a focus of attention for us that we forget the point of spiritual gifts. And all of this climaxes in the summary statement of verse 11, which drives home the same point as verse 7. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Let me say it again, especially if you are prone to thinking that this is not you. If you are in Christ, then you have His Spirit, the very same one who has gifted you with spiritual gifts. And notice who it is that empowers the gift. It's the Spirit. As we find right throughout Scripture, we have no cause for boasting, even if we are, are, are given incredible gifts, because everything comes from God. Our talents, our abilities, and our gifts all come from Him. And that very God, that very Spirit, the one who apportions those gifts to each one individually, He does it as He wills. He distributes, He apportions the spiritual gifts according to His will. Brother, sister, God has gifted you. He has gifted you. And notice how He has done so according to His will. Do you ever find yourself being jealous of other people's spiritual gifts? I mean, we do this naturally as human beings with other gifts, don't we? I wish I had the confidence of him or the intelligence of her or the, the talent of him or the charisma of her. The same can easily happen with spiritual gifts. We're not satisfied with the gifts that God has given us. Not realizing that what is growing within us is an unhealthy envy of, being, of, of wanting to be noticed, of wanting to do something that is admired and appreciated by so many. Wishing that, we, that, that God had given us different gifts, other gifts, things that we would prefer. 
remember that He is a good Father. And He gives you good gifts according to His will. And He knows what He's doing. The gifts that He has given you have been given especially for you. Let, the, let your discontent with your gift or your lack of the one that you might want be soothed by the assurance that God knows you better than you know yourself. And not only that, He knows what is good for you. And He has given you the spiritual gifts that you need to follow and serve Him faithfully. But it's not just Him that you're serving as you exercise spiritual gifts, is it? Which brings us to our second point. God has given you spiritual gifts for the common good. When was the last time that you had a birthday and then opened all your presents and then proceeded to distribute them to all of your guests? Anyone? Has anybody ever done that? No? Kids? Austin? You had your birthday last week. Did you do that? No, look at that. Look at that puzzled look on his face. What? What are you talking about? Why would I do such a thing? No. Once again, in our culture, we're not accustomed to thinking of gifts as being something that we receive and then immediately give to others. And this isn't just with physical gifts, is it? As I mentioned earlier, the first and most often the most prominent thought in our minds when we wish we had certain gifts or when we realize that we have certain gifts is usually to use them for our own personal gain. That's not how it is with spiritual gifts. Or at least, that's not how it should be. Let's look at verse 7 again. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. In those four words are the vision statement of spiritual gifts. And they say the shorter the vision statement and the more memorable it is, then the better it is. Now, this could be, I think, a good vision statement for spiritual gifts, for the common good. Spiritual gifts are given to each one individually by God as He wills for the common good. And to be clear, in context, that is talking about the church and more specifically, the local church. Spiritual gifts will likely provide some benefit to those outside the church and certainly would to other local churches. But Paul's main concern here, as it is throughout the letter, is with the local church. That will only become clearer as he applies this in chapter 14 to the gathering of the local church. If exercising our spiritual gifts is more important to us than serving the body, then there is something amiss. If you would move churches or choose a church based primarily on whether you're able to exercise your spiritual gift there, 
then that should be a red flag to you. I know how that feels. For, for a long time for me, uh, unless I could serve somewhere in music, I don't, I'm not interested. God has not given you a spiritual gift or gifts so that you can feel fulfilled in being able to exercise it. That is not His way of you trying to find your identity. Spiritual gifts have been given to you for the common good. So if we're trying to figure out what could legitimately be called a spiritual gift that, uh, that isn't mentioned in the Bible is, well, here's the most important criterion. If it does not serve the common good, it is not a spiritual gift. If it does not build up the body of Christ, then it's not a spiritual gift. I don't think it's worth the brain space or the effort to try and figure out whether we should call something a spiritual gift or not. You know, I think we should probably just reserve that term for what the Bible explicitly calls spiritual gifts. But at least we know for sure that if it builds up the body, that it has the most important element of a spiritual gift. So at this point, I think it would be worth at least trying to broadly define what a spiritual gift is. After all, if I'm going to leave the discussion of whether we should still seek miraculous gifts or not, ooh, well, then what do I do today, right? I think it's still possible to give a definition that we can use today. And so here's my attempt at something basic. Spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Spirit that are given by God to each one of His people according to His will for the common good. I'm not expecting you to write that down. Not that people are furiously trying to right now. Let me say it again. Spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Spirit that are given by God to each one of His people according to His will for the common good. Now, that's not a groundbreaking definition. It's not even a particularly precise definition. All I've done is taken the language of the chapter and put it into a sentence. But I make it because I want to be clear that it's a definition that applies both to first century Corinthians and 21st century Australians. A spiritual gift doesn't have to be miraculous. So even if you haven't resolved that question yet, you can still pray when you walk out the door today that God would help you to exercise the spiritual gifts that He's given you for the building up of the local body that He has placed you in. You can pray that He would keep you from being envious of other people's gifts. You can pray that He would keep you from seeking fulfillment or identity in your spiritual gifts. You can pray that He would continue to add more gifts to you so that you may be a blessing and, and to build up the body of Christ. God has not designed the Christian life to be a solo sport. It is not a luge. Children, does anyone know what a luge is? Anyone? Adults, does anyone know what a luge is? It is a Winter Olympic event. It looks like this. It's one person on, who knows what that is, a platform with ice large ice skating blades on the bottom of it. As that, yeah, that's called a luge. That's right. 
The Christian life is not a luge event. It is a bobsled event. That's right. It's not a luge event. It's a bobsled team. And as Cool Runnings taught us all, if a single member of the bobsled team seeks personal glory, then the rest of the team suffers. The diverse gifts come from the same God who desires that his body would be united as one. Spiritual gifts bring unity out of diversity. Let's read from verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now these are transitional verses because, as we'll see next week, Paul really makes use of this body image. But the thought flows on from what he's just said about spiritual gifts. That's what the four at the beginning of verse 12 is for. Here he is expanding on what it means for spiritual gifts to be apportioned by God for the common good. He says, for we are all members of one body. Though we are many, we are one in Christ. Why? Because we were baptized into one spirit. No matter where we came from, no matter what status we had beforehand, no matter what our ethnicity is, we are one in Him. Notice how Paul, as he often does, reminds the Corinthians of the different ends of the social scale that followers of Christ come from. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. When we were pagans, when we were spiritually dead, other statuses defined us. They were more important to us. Our ethnicity, our social standing, our pay slips, they separated us. But now Christ makes us one. Or at least... He should. Are your gifts being used to build up the whole body? Not just the parts of the body that you like and are comfortable with and who are in the same social spheres as you. Would that still be true if we welcome members into the body from many other walks of life, would you still love and serve and build up the body? I pray that as members of this local body, we would seek ongoing unity, even in the midst of growing diversity. And I pray that we would recognize and exercise the spiritual gifts that God has apportioned to each one of us for the common good. But how can we do that practically? How do I know what God has gifted me with? What gifts, spiritual gifts He has given me in order to build up the body? 
I remember when I was in youth group, uh, they gave out a questionnaire to discover what your gifts were. Uh, has anyone ever done a Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram test? Put your hand up. Sorry, you may not want to admit that, but I'm making you now. It was, it was a bit like that, right? You, you ask a bunch of questions, I like this, I like that, and then, they, and then it spits it out. Your spiritual gift is... I certainly would not recommend that method. Mostly because it's all about you rather than about the body. And that's the reason why most people take those tests. Some people even put it on their social media profiles. I am a whatever. No, the best way to discover your spiritual gifts is to ask how you can serve the local body. It's to figure them out in the context of the local body. I think it was Tim Keller I remember hearing once talk about the best way to discover that, your, your spiritual gifts, is to, to ask what the needs are in your local church. In the process, you may discover that God has gifted you in ways that you didn't realize. You might be coming thinking, oh, well, I know what my spiritual gifts are. I'm good at this, I'm good at this. I've served in another church in this way, and I've seen, you know. But you may discover that perhaps those gifts aren't needed in this local body that God has placed you in. And you may discover that God has gifted you in other ways or may grow you in other ways and give you more gifts as you serve the body, perhaps in ways that you never thought before. After all, what good is a spiritual gift if it isn't serving the local body? What good is a spiritual gift if there is no uh, common good that it is serving? By definition, from Scripture, that's not a spiritual gift. A self-serving spiritual gift is no gift at all. So, brothers and sisters, in order to discover how God has apportioned spiritual gifts to you, first ask how you can build up the local church that He has placed you in. What are the needs in your church? For members of Emmaus Road, our statement of faith has a set of commitments that we make to each other. Have a read over that. What are ways that you perhaps might grow in that commitment to others? Have the conversation with other members of the body. Talk to your pastors about areas of need that you think we can grow in. Ask us where and how you can serve. And as you do that, God's Holy Spirit will bring your spiritual gifts to light. And no doubt, other members of the body will identify them and encourage you in them. And as a result, God will increasingly bring unity through the diversity of His people and the many gifts that He has given to all of them. The body is built up by its many members. You may not be what the world calls gifted. History may not remember your name. But brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you are spiritually gifted by God for the common good. History is full of faithful Sams and Ulrichs and Kim's, and countless others that did not enter the history books or make a name for themselves. 
but they are known to the God who apportioned them with spiritual gifts according to his goodwill. And they were known by their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they served their fellow members of their local body for their good and for his glory, knowing that when they see God again, face to face, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't hide your gifts under a rock. Don't hoard them to yourself. How will you use the spiritual gifts that God has given you for the common good? Let's pray. Our Father, our one God in three persons, Father, Spirit, Son. Lord, we worship you. We praise you because you have brought us out of darkness and into your glorious light. We were once those who worshipped self and others but by your grace you have made us those who worship you. Father, we pray that as we contemplate the gifts that you have given us in order that we may serve you and build up your body, Father, keep us from being self-centered and selfish with them. Father, grow in us a great love for our brothers and sisters that you have placed around us. And Lord, as a result, may your people be built up. May your kingdom come. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.